Good morning, everyone. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the USDA Forest Service Seminar on Leading as a Climate Smart STEM Professional. This is seminar number 1777, and we are extremely excited to be here today. Our main objective is to share with you some of the best available science and the role that STEM professionals have in the management of climate smart forests, communities, and economies. And we'll be hearing from accomplished professionals and scientists from the Forest Service. Our panel members will describe their impact as professionals helping our nation make climate smart management decisions and their work in research is impressive and inspiring, and it provides a holistic understanding of the socio-ecological dynamics across our nation's diverse landscapes that help guide sound science-informed decision-making in response to climate change and extreme climatic events. Their stories can help deepen our understanding about the best practices and STEM professional career opportunities in the management of unique ecosystem currently threatened by climate change. We have four panelists joining us today, and it's my pleasure to introduce you first to Dr. Cassandra Johnson Gaither. Cassandra is a research social scientist at the Southern Research Station with the Forest Service in Athens, Georgia. Her research interests address human perceptions and interactions with nature and the environment. She has published research addressing social group visitation to wildland recreation areas, environmental justice as it relates to minority and lower wealth group access to outdoor recreation facilities, and more recently, the interaction of socially vulnerable populations and environmental risk. Her current work focuses on the interaction of property ownership and social vulnerability in the South and the implications of the same for national forest management. Our panelist, uh, Dr. Consuelo Brandes, is a research forester with the Southern Research Station with the Forest Inventory and Analysis Unit in Knoxville, Tennessee where she serves as the lead for the National Timber Products Output Monitoring Section. Her research interests center on exploring issues related to forest resource and economic conditions affecting timber resource use in the United States. Her current research projects include the analysis of mill closures and wood procurement patterns, mill byproduct production, and factors affecting mill residue use patterns. Ms. Concepcion Flores is a tribal member of the Pasquajaki tribe of Arizona. She's currently a natural resource specialist with the Office of Sustainability and Climate in the Washington office. She's a fire focus adaptation specialist and is also working on tribal engagement in the context of climate adaptation. Dr. Shanika Lawson is a research plant physiologist with the Northern Research Station. She has investigated the role of climate change on plants and trees before substantially genetically engineering specific tree species to be tolerant to drought, salt, and heat. She is currently working with genetics and how anthropogenic changes lead to physiological and phenomenological changes. 
She has donated over 5,000 hours to more than a dozen different underserved groups since she began with the Forest Service 10 years ago. I am Grisel Gonzalez, and I'll be serving as your moderator today. I have been working with the Forest Service for 20 years, and I have served in multiple roles from postdoctoral scientist to um, research project leader and assistant director for the research unit. Currently, I'm serving as the institute director. Um, in this current position, I help guide the science, the administration, and communication of research taking place in tropical forests and grasslands. Welcome all. So with these introductions, we are about ready to start our panel today. But I want to say that the full bios of each of today's panel members can be found in the conference app. Also, this session is going to be recorded, so we will be able to go back and listen to it if we so wish so. Um, you can apply for CEU PDH credits using the link for the seminar for the session. I also want to remind you that the Forest Service is participating in the STEM Career Fair that is taking place online tomorrow, Saturday, 10 to 4 p.m., where virtually you'll be able to meet recruiters and specialists. But today, we also have our personnel, HRM personnel, in the house, Emily Ortiz and Barbara Jordan, and she can help you through the process as well. Without further ado, I would like to invite our panelists to provide some introductory remarks on their work as related to climate change. First, I'll introduce Dr. Cassandra Johnson. She will speak on social vulnerability and climate change. Good morning, everyone. This is actually my first time being sitting in the city of Detroit. I've heard so much about Detroit and you know, um, the challenges and you know, how the city is rising to meet those challenges, so it's great to be here. And thank you all for, for, for showing up, for coming to our, our session. So again, I am a, um, a social scientist, and the research that I do looks at generally how social factors, how factors like race and ethnicity, wealth, income, gender, how these um, uh, all can play a, uh, a role in determining outcomes for people for a lot of different things. You know, and of course, as a sociologist, I'm convinced of this, I know this, but you know, this point really hit home for me after um, listening to, watching a TED talk by Dr. Anthony Eiton, and I apologize that Dr. Eiton's image is not on the screen there, but um, I, I, I wanted to show his image. Um, it was too late to make a change. But um, this point really hit home after listening to his TED Talk, and he really pointed to data that showed that you know, where people live, in particular, the social conditions in the places where people live are, can determine health outcomes for folks. And so, you know, this is someone who is very much trained and steeped in the biological and I dare say physical sciences, but, you know, he maintains that as a physician, you know, uh, he's famous for stressing that a person's zip code, okay, their zip code has more influence on health outcomes than their genetic code. Poor people are more likely to have poor health. And I'd add that, you know, zip codes or some other, like, um, identifier of where people live can determine people's responses 
and engagements with life more generally, right? So children from poor school districts are more likely to have lower uh, high school graduation rates and probably have lower paying jobs after they reach adulthood. So then social factors, right? So while not absolutely determinative, because I'm sure all of us can point to a person or groups of people who've done very well despite their humble beginnings. But that said, social factors are really crucial for understanding how people experience life in American society and indeed worldwide. So including how they are ultimately impacted by severe weather events like hurricanes, uh, uh, say, uh, wildfire, and certainly climate change. And for this reason, I'm sure, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPPC, um, they identify uh, social factors, what they call vulnerability, as one of three main components of climate uh, change risk. And uh, my research on climate change has focused on the uh, vulnerability dimension of climate change risk and how that interacts with exposure and um, hazards. Um, so in terms of vulnerability, then, my main interest is in something called contextual vulnerability. So right now, as we sit in this comfortable room here in Detroit, there are folks in Puerto Rico, in Florida, in South Carolina, really trying to put their lives back together after experiencing these extreme events, right? And so, of course, all kinds of folks along the socioeconomic spectrum are trying to do this, poor and rich alike. I wanna make clear, you know, of course, poor and rich alike. But people's ability to withstand and recover from these events will depend on what kinds of vulnerabilities they faced before these weather events occurred. So this is what's called contextual vulnerability. So contextual vulnerabilities refer to social factors, the extent to which people have greater or less access to things like um, being able to liquefy their wealth, income streams, uh, whether or not they have insurance and the kinds of insurance that they are able to afford the extent to which people have access to these benefits all the time, not just when um, a disaster occurs, but the extent to which they can access these kinds of resources and benefits all the time. So think about um, South Carolina, again, uh, a state that was just, just, just experienced a hurricane. So um, almost 17% of the housing stock in South Carolina is manufactured homes, so a mobile home. Some people call them trailers. Actually, when I was born, my parents lived in a trailer in Athens, Georgia, and I have to tell you, it was a this tiny little matchbox kind of a thing. So <laughs> that's nearly one out of five houses in the entire state, okay? So mobile homes, uh, sustain more damage during storms, in part because of the building material, okay, and maybe because they're not actually fastened or secured to the ground. So if you're in a manufactured home, a mobile home, uh, chances are that you are already more vulnerable because of your exposure, even before the storm event occurs. So you're more vulnerable than somebody that, that lives, say, in a constructed home, for instance. And very importantly, lower income folks, they are more likely to live in mobile homes, so their housing vulnerability and exposure to hazards are compounded. This is compounded by other sensitivities um, that usually uh, affect people who don't have so much income. And so with that, I'll end. Thanks so much.
Thank you, Dr. Johnson. Next, I would like to invite Concepcion Flores for her remarks uh, along path uh, to working with climate adaptation. All right, hello, good morning. I am Concepcion Flores, and as a tribal member of the Pascoyaki tribe of Arizona, I am greeting you from the original homeland of six indigenous nations. They are the Meskwaki Asahina, Peoria, Miamia, Mississauga, Potawatomi, and the Anishinaabewaki. I'm a climate adaptation specialist with the office, U.S. Forest Service Office of Sustainability and Climate. I grew up in the Southwest, surrounded by cotton fields and deserts, and never had seen a forest until I was a teenager. My path to natural resources began as a high school volunteer for the Student Conservation Association. It was during this volunteer service where I first encountered a Ponderosa pine forest on the Coronado National Forest. This experience inspired me to major in watershed management at the University of Arizona, where I received a Bachelor of Science degree in natural resources. Eventually, I continued my education at the University of Maryland Eastern Shore, where my project focused on the effect of prescribed fire on marsh vegetation on the Blackwater National Wildlife Refuge. After my master's, I began a PhD program at the University of Montana with the Rocky Mountain Research Station Fire Sciences Lab. At the University of Montana, I joined the student chapter of the American Indian Science and Engineering Society, where we coordinated a conference presenting indigenous traditional ecological knowledge and Western science, which focused on climate change. Like many of you, I'm sure, life doesn't always go as planned, and setbacks in my dissertation research led me to eventually leave the program before I finished and find a job in my field instead. So with the help of a friend, I applied to a natural resource intern position with the Department of Navy. Did you know that the Department of Navy has a natural resource program and is in charge with adhering to environmental laws, making sure that Navy does that? Well, I didn't. It does. So it was in this position where I began to educate myself further on climate change and had the opportunity to develop natural resource plans that address climate change. So I started my position as a climate adaptation specialist with the Office of Sustainability and Climate in August. Our office works at a national scale on policy, guidance, climate tools and information, and technical assistance for resource managers. My focus will be on fire and tribal engagement. Specifically, I will work to incorporate climate change into fire planning and our national wildfire crisis strategy. Also, future projects include creating best practices to work with indigenous people and developing a resource to incorporate indigenous traditional ecological knowledge. In July, the Forest Service released its climate adaptation plan. The Forest Service adaptation plan presents a comprehensive approach to integrating climate change adaptation into the forest's operations and mission. This plan outlines key climate risks to the agency's operations and critical adaptation actions to reduce these risks and help ensure the Forest Service continues to meet the needs of present and future generations. The Forest Service identified six key risks to the agency's mission in these categories. One, shifting fire regimes and resulting effects on ecological integrity, multiple uses, human safety, and wildland fire management operations. Two, extreme events and disturbances, including effects of flooding, drought, insect outbreaks, invasive species, and severe storms. Three, 
chronic stressors to watersheds and ecosystems, such as altered productivity and composition, changes in habitat for plants and animals, and implications for the agency's ability to manage these systems over time. Four, disruption in the delivery of ecosystem products and services, including clean water, carbon uptake and storage, forest and rangeland products, and recreation op opportunities. Five, disproportionate impacts on disadvantaged communities and tribal nations, including human health impacts, loss of cultural resources, and threats to economic prosperity and equity. And six, threats to the agency mission, infrastructure and operations from disruption to operations, strains on workforce capacity, more complex public engagement, and fewer resources. Now, as a climate adaptation specialist, I and six other adaptation specialists on our team will be working to implement this plan nationally by coordinating with Forest Service programs and developing action items. My work in the Office of Sustainability and Climate will contribute to items one, five, and to some degree, item six. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Flores. Next, I would like to invite Dr. Shanika Lawson for her perspective on multifaceted approach to climate, re climate change research. Thank you. So everyone comes to this field in a different way. You don't always have to have a background in forestry or science in order to come into the Forest Service or even to begin working with research. So I'm gonna share my journey and show you how there are many multifaceted approaches to go from point A to point B, C, D, E, or however you wanna get there. So I grew up on a farm, not cows. I was more of a ducks, geese. We had peacocks, we had guinea fowls. And when I was in school, like when I was really little, and you know how kids go on these little trips to different places, like they take them to the zoo or something. Well, everyone's field trip was to my house, which was a lot less exciting than, than it sounds. I grew up in a small town, it's called Crisfield. I like the conception, talked about the University of Maryland Eastern Shore, that is 15 minutes away from where I grew up. As you can see by the pictures, it's crab everything. The town is actually known as the crab capital of the world because before I was born, I'd say about 70% of the population had a job in the seafood industry and the majority of it was crabbing. They had a seafood processing plant called Mrs. Paul's Kitchen. If you're seasoned enough to know that that company went out of business about 15 years ago, then I mean, there was a lot going on and everything was focused on seafood. So I didn't know anything about forestry or anything else at that time. I was from an all military family. Everyone in my family is in the military except for me. So I, I feel like the black sheep. Um, I decided to go to college and to double major in biology and chemistry at Morgan State University. It's an HBCU in Baltimore. I minored in English, Spanish, and Latin, because you can never know too many languages. Uh, after graduating, I decided that I was going to be looking more into the medical field. So I applied to Johns Hopkins University, and I have a master's in biotechnology and biodefense. I was going to work for the US Army. See, I was going to get into the military you know, by the back door. And I was going to work for my dream employer, which was USAMRED, United States Army's Research Institute for Infectious Diseases. Most folks know it as the folks who study smallpox, Ebola, et cetera. And that's kind of what I wanted to do with my master's degree because with biodefense, the classes were taught by the US Army. I know where all the bodies are buried. I know all the little secrets that they have. 
And I thought that's where I was gonna go with my life until I realized that a lot of the chemicals that they're talking about, a lot of the cures, a lot of the medications that we have, they come from plants. So I needed to know something about plants. So I applied to Purdue University, which was ranked in the top five in the country. And when I went to Purdue, I decided I needed to know a little bit more about genetics. How do these things work? So I have a PhD in plant physiology and genetics, and I had a research project. I skipped over my work history because you can see it on the screen. But I had a research project that was abiotic stress tolerance and genetic engineering. And what I did was I genetically engineered poplar trees to be salt tolerant, drought tolerant, and they also grew at the same rate as trees that did not have these advantages. And I manipulated the stomatal density, you know, like the little pores on the in top and bottom of the leaves, and I used gene stacking. So I had a gene that would make them resistant to drought, gene that would make them resistant to salt. Stacked these all in a plasmid, genetically engineered my trees, and watched to see what would happen, and it was successful. Note, the USDA does not plant genetically engineered trees, so that particular project was not beneficial in my current career. However, how does all of the work that I'm doing now fit into climate change? So I'm gonna talk about a few selected efforts, machine learning, soil suitability, and diversity efforts. Okay, this looks like there's a whole lot going on in this slide, so I'm gonna break it down into quadrants. On the upper left, we're talking about machine learning. Does anyone know what I'm talking about when I say machine learning? Yes, oh, I love having computer people in here. So essentially what I'm doing is I'm taking large data sets with a number of different traits that I've studied. I look at leaf length, width, uh, aspiration rates, and I collect all of that data and put it into a, basically a pile. With machine learning, you design a computer program to go through all of that data and make predictions. I've worked on a project where you can predict the sex of a tree, whether it's gonna be a male or a female, based on machine learning data. And that project with a 94% success rate. So essentially when you're working on something like that, if you have to plant thousands of trees, somebody's gonna be out there planting thousands of trees. If you only want trees of a certain sex, you kinda wanna know that you don't need to plant that many. You'd rather plant a couple of hundred than a few thousand. Work hours, man hours, the money that it will cost you, the supplies, all of that can be scaled back if you know in advance what you're gonna get. Um, disease resistance, we're working on a project now that looks at disease resistance to see if there are particular traits that you can isolate in order to determine which trees will be disease resistant. And precocity, that means how quickly the tree will be mature. And maturity means they'll produce fruit, they'll produce acorns, they'll produce walnuts. And that's one of the projects we're working on with machine learning. And that all fits into climate adaptation because if you've got trees that will grow quickly and produce like exactly what you want sooner because some trees don't mature until they're 10, 15, 20 years old. You want the ones that are gonna do that much more quickly because you need it now. Um, soil suitability. I have a grant working on soil suitability because I've just talked to you about the above ground traits like leaf length, width, et cetera. You've gotta know what's going on below the soil. Now, which bacteria and fungi are working together to produce something that makes that tree grow faster? So that's one of the projects that I'm working on. And you look at abiotic stress, pH, soil texture, and nutrients. The third project, and I know I'm talking rather quickly because I've got a five minute time limit. You're looking at diversity and outreach and volunteering. Why am I including this on the slide? I will show you. If you start from the first slide, that's me talking to a group of fourth graders. I'm talking about forestry, science, I'm talking about the forest service, the things that we do, 
eight of the 70 students that were listening to me have proceeded to go into careers that would lead them directly into the Forest Service. I'm very proud of that. So I talked about careers and animals. That information was then transferred to the second picture. I'm actually talking to undergraduate college students about the different things that you can do in forestry. I don't know the percentages for them, but a lot of them are now at Purdue University. Then I went from there because the, uh, the data and the students that were there talked about it. I am planting a tree at the courthouse in Tippecanoe County in Lafayette, Indiana, where I'm currently living, with the city council people, the mayor of Lafayette, and the mayor of West Lafayette because they heard about what I was doing. They wanted to be more involved, and I was invited to come help them plant a tree. All of that was then picked up by, I've got $5 in my wallet if someone can tell me who the man is standing on the left of me. Well, on the left in the photo. Looks like I saved $5. That is the Secretary of Agriculture. So me starting with fourth graders has led to me being able to meet and greet with the Secretary of Agriculture about the work that we do as far as the Forest Service and the work that I do personally. So working with outreach, volunteering, it might not look like you're going many places, but you can go so far with just a little bit of effort. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Lawson. Next, I would like to invite Dr. Consuelo Brandes. She will be speaking about timber products and climate change mitigation. Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> um, so I'm gonna pivot a bit. Uh, my story is just focusing about what I do for, for research. Um, I work with forest resources use, looking at different aspects of it, like how is it used, uh, how much are we using, who is using it, where we're using it, etc. A range of issues around that topic. And <clears throat> believe it or not, the climate change comes into that mix of, of things as well, because timber products can play a significant role in our efforts to mitigate climate change. So on my next slide, it's a little bit busy, um, but it shows the uh, cycle of carbon through the forest and the forest pro production of forest products. And um, I have it there, so one, for one thing, to remind me all the steps, <laughs> and also to help you go navigate through them. Um, so we start with a forest that is growing, and as forest grows, um, the trees are wonderful plants. They grab carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Um, they break it up into carbon and oxygen. They keep the carbon. They release the oxygen to the atmosphere. So they're helping us clean out the, the air. And with that service, we, we store that carbon and, and we can mitigate climate change. As a reminder, carbon dioxide is, is what's causing us at the center of the rising temperatures globally. So that is, again, tied to our climate, right? Climate change. So, <clears throat> so they perform the service for us, and um, while they're growing throughout their life, they keep doing that and storing more carbon. Of course, at one point, they're gonna die, and when they do die and decompose, that carbon goes back to the atmosphere. And also, when we have um, like a wildfire and kill the trees, we also have release of, of carbon to the atmosphere. So it is ideal for us as managers of, of forest land to think about how to use the resource to maximize the benefit of carbon sequestration. And so a way to do that is to harvest those trees and then utilize the, the harvested tree into a wooden product, right? A wood product will still hold that carbon um, for the life of that product. And then, of course, the key part on that is that 
we also manage the land that we harvested so that we maintain those trees growing so that we have regeneration, right? New trees coming on the site, um, growing, and again, collecting that carbon dioxide, making the breakout, and, and releasing oxygen, cleaning the air for us. So, um, so in the wood products, as I, as I said, the carbon that was stored in that tree is preserved for the life of that product. So that's one service, again, a way in which we can mitigate climate, climate change. And then uh, on top of that, <laughs> like if that wasn't enough, uh, <laughs> we can also uh, utilize wood or promote the use of wood and products that are otherwise come from other commodities. Like for instance, we can replace um, concrete or steel in construction jobs with wood products so that we're now replacing products that generate uh, emissions with a product that is actually um, storing carbon, right? So there, is, there are two sides to that, right? So it's, it's the, the, um, the storage of carbon and also the substitution of carbon emission um, products with a product that is actually uh, storing that carbon for us. So in summary, if we, if we apply that uh, in a good way, meaning that we maintain the forest cover and generate products that actually have a longer duration, right, um, or that they can substitute other products that are fossil, fossil fuel um, intensive, then we can have a balance and help balance that carbon and, and help uh, mitigate climate change. With that, I think I went pretty quickly to that. <laughs> I apologize. Um, but uh, the main idea is that, that I want to leave you with, is next time that you have a choice um, to select, you're out there buying something and you have the option to go with the wood product against another type of material, um, think about the benefits of a wood product and how you will be helping the environment <laughs> in our climate change, but just doing that very simple choice of selecting a wood product. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Brandes. And we're about to start a question and answer question session, but I'll also um, like to share first uh, some of my perspectives about climate change studies in tropical forests, grasslands, and, and cities. I was born and raised in Puerto Rico, and I have had the pleasure to work for over 30 years uh, studying and researching the uh, Puerto Rico natural resources. It's, it's a, a very fascinating place to study. It's the easternmost, the southernmost, the most diverse, the wettest of all the forests in the national forest system in the U.S. And it has been recognized as a source for forest resources since the days of the Spanish crown in the 1500s and a cultural resource since the indigenous people inhabited uh, the island. Uh, it's a unique region, not only because it's diverse, it's also because it has high percentage of endemism and endangered species. Um, within two kilometers inland, you find the national forest, but within that range, you can find freshwater swamps, uh, saltwater swamps, dry and wet forests. It's very diverse, you have very diverse soils. 10 of the 12 soil orders that have been described in the US can be found in 100 by 35 miles area. And 
within that context, you also have threatened coastal and cloud forest environments. You have low food and fiber security. You have low adaptive capability. You also have um, ecosystems that are vulnerable to hurricanes and, and droughts. And it's within this context that uh, the Institute uh, carries on research at providing scientifically based knowledge that helps contribute the conservation of our natural resources in the context of environmental change. And the climate change program is basically centered around three main pillars, one around monitoring. Since many of these areas of studies were established in the 1930s, 40s, or 50s, these are the oldest ever established in a tropical region. We have elevation gradients that go from the coast all the way to the top of the mountain, so we can study the chiefs of species composition as time uh, in climate changes. Uh, we have over 50,000 trees stacked, so we can monitor um, the growth or the mortality rates according to the different climatic events. Experimentation, it's uh, pretty central to the research program. We do fire experiments in grasslands, drought experiments. We have the first warming experiment because within the Caribbean region, we're expected to have four degrees Celsius increase. So we need to go out there and, and do this experimentation so we can be ahead of the curve and be able to provide the science that the public and the managers uh, will be able to then use for make climate smart decisions. We also have a canopy treatment experiment where we mimic a hurricane because um, modeling exercises uh, predict that the hurricanes will be not only more frequent but stronger. So by increasing the, the treatment that we do in these plots of forest will get us to what, what will happen to the forest if these events are to continue to con uh, happen at this rate. And then we take all that information into modeling exercises. Um, it's very important because for, for many parts of the tropics, that's a big black box uh, into the models, but it's very important to take into account if we are to make global predictions. And um, we have then maps like this where uh, according to scenarios of global warming and the different time series, we might be able to um, extrapolate, say, whether there will be a shift in species composition or forest composition from wetter to drier environments. We don't know if that is the case, but this is uh, the information that we gather to help um, bring it to the public and, and decision makers. And the information that's produced here, it's also valuable for many other insular Carib uh, Caribbean countries. So with that, uh, I'm gonna uh, pivot and, and then we're gonna go into a question and answer period so we can get a deeper understanding of the hopes and the impact that these panelists have in helping our nation make climate smart management decision. And we are um, gonna start um, with uh, four questions that have been prepared for the panelists. And, and this is important, now more than ever, uh, science-based management decisions natural of, uh, science-based management of natural resources is important for mitigating and adapting to the effects of climate change. My question to all of them is, as professionals in STEM fields, how are you providing scientific knowledge that is applicable for making climate smart management decisions? 
And I would like to invite um, Ms. Flores first. So uh, in the Office of Sustainability and Climate, our collective experience in natural resources makes it possible to provide service and support for the Forest Service in the Climate Adaptation Plan. We will be working to help provide technical assistance and tools and information to Forest Service programs. We will also be working with Forest Service regions to assist with their climate adaptation plans. So far, the Office of Sustainability and Climate has developed an adaptation workbook to help managers incorporate climate change considerations and management into and devise adaptation tactics. The Office of Sustainability and Climate has also developed a tribal adaptation menu that provides a framework to integrate indigenous and traditional knowledge, culture, language, and history into the climate adaptation process. In addition, we are currently working on a new climate decision support system in support of the Secretary of Agriculture's Memorandum on Climate Resilience and Carbon Stewardship of America's National Forests and Grasslands. Now, me in particular, as I stated in my presentation, I will be working on products, projects in my focus areas of fire, tribal engagement, and to some extent, infrastructure. One of my projects will be to help incorporate climate change and adaptation into fire planning and our wildfire crisis strategy. A future project includes developing a resource to incorporate indigenous traditional ecological knowledge into climate adaptation plans. And another future project involves looking at climate change considerations for infrastructure belonging to the Forest Service. So these projects and any future projects I have will help to inform climate smart management decisions. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Flores. Next, I would like to invite Consuelo. Consuelo has a Forester, how are you providing scientific knowledge that is applicable for making um, climate smart management decisions? Yeah, thanks, Griselle. So, so my work, I, I explore um, data looking at forest products production, right? How much are we producing? And how the industry is developing in different areas. And that information helps with our work on determining the carbon storage on wood products. I work for the Forest Inventory and Analysis Group within the Forest Service. So they collect, I would say we, but I don't really go to the field, so I don't want to take credit for that work. <laughs> but they collect, FIA collects data on, on forests, um, you know, how, how forests are growing and uh, health, uh, a range of data on our forests to get an understanding of, of forest conditions. And part of that is the timber products output section, and that's the, the section I lead. And we collect information about the industry and how is industry utilizing the harvested uh, timber. And so part of that information we use in many, in many applications, but one of the applications that we are developing now is using that information to help us understand the impact of um, events, weather events, such, a, such as hurricanes, right? We have one in, in Florida uh, last week, and I plan to work on that next week, trying to assess the damage to the forest land, to the timberlands, to the industry, and to the communities that depend on that resource for, for their livelihood. So, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Brandes. Now I would like to ask Dr. Johnson, you are a social scientist, how is your science helping make climate smart management decisions? Oh, sure. So again, referencing my work on vulnerability, social vulnerability. So there are a number of different ways that 
vulnerability, this contextual vulnerability that I mentioned, a number of different ways that it can be measured. You know, and so typical proxies are looking at sociodemographic factors like income and um, uh, race ethnicity, English language ability, uh, people's access to reliable transportation, for instance. And these are all good. These are great. They're typically used in, uh, say, social vulnerability indices uh, produced by organizations like the CDC, for instance. And these are great. Um, but um, I've worked uh, with a geographer, actually, to uh, identify what I think may be a more precise measure of vulnerability. And this has to do with land ownership. Okay, and how property ownership influences outcomes, again, before and after, say, a weather event. You know, I think most folks in this room are probably old enough to remember Hurricane Katrina. Maybe you heard your parents talk about Hurricane Katrina. So in its aftermath, you know, there were a lot of folks in the Gulf region along that, uh, the Gulf Coast really scrambling, trying to get um, assistance from the federal government, from FEMA. Uh, and a number of those folks were denied because they could not prove that they own these properties, okay? And so a lot of these folks, they held property um, in, uh, that's classed as what's called a tenancy in common. This is also called heirs property, like, so H-E-I-R, like heir to the throne, for example, heirs property. And so um, when people own property like this, they typically own it with extended family members. And this happens because someone uh, passed away and there wasn't a will. So when someone passes away and there's not a will, property gets passed along to relevant um, uh, family members via what's called state laws of intestate succession. So it's sort of what's called, what attorneys call a default way of owning property. You know, I own property because I'm a, a relative of someone who passed away. And so in these situations, just say grandma or grandpa may have bought land in 1940 in, I don't know, Wayne County, Michigan, right? So grandma and grandpa have both passed away. Neither one of them uh, created a will, but uh, in the ensuing decades, there are an additional, I don't know, 25, 30, 40, 50 members have been added to that family. Their names are not on any official documentation associated with that property, but they all own these tiny fractional interests in that property. And so they own what's called, um, uh, you know, these fractionated interests, uh, colloquially, they're called heirs property. Um, so. But um, proof of property ownership, though, is crucial to being able to secure resources to, say, repair property. But if your name's not on any uh, of official documentation, then you can't prove that you own the property, but you do own the property. So you are an undocumented owner of property. And so a lot of my research in the last couple of years has focused on identifying where these properties are across the U.S. And um, if you work in my little arena, this is, this is huge. Maybe it's like, you guys are like, yeah, okay, so what? But <laughs> in our little world, <laughs> this is huge because one of the first things that, uh, like, say, policy folks or, yeah, uh, folks who could maybe put some resources towards this problem, one of the first things that folks uh, typically ask is, well, how much of this property exists? Where does it exist? So again, I've focused in the last couple of years working with a geographer who um, has 
helped me to identify where these properties are across the U.S. And this is the, actually the first time this has ever been done at this scale. And as expected, as you, if you could uh, kind of reference the map um, uh, here that's shown, these properties, they sort of cluster in the, what's, what we call the Black Belt South, and that's generally sort of um, the area of the country that runs from about southern Virginia down through the Carolinas and over to Mississippi. We see uh, uh, more clustering there. And they are also found in eastern Kentucky and Appalachia, again, a place in the country where there's persistent poverty. And you see a little bit of something showing up in parts of the kind of the maybe the Great Plains states where you have some indigenous populations. Um, this kind of land fractionation is a whole other issue for indigenous folks. I mean, we could spend hours talking about that because that was something that was actually uh, set in motion by the federal government. But um, that would take us a long time to talk about it, and I'm probably not the best person to talk about that. But um, so again, this identification of where these properties are is especially useful to public agencies in their efforts to anticipate where these higher risk populations are. And so that has Im implications for how people may be able to respond to some type of event, uh, say weather event associated with climate change that might occur. Thank you, Dr. Johnson, for making those important remarks about property ownership, social vulnerability, and how we plan for climate change adaptation and, and mitigation. Um, now we're going to shift on the same question now. Uh, Dr. Lawson is a plant physiologist. Dr. Lawson, how your research can help make climate smart management decisions? My research is a combination of basic and applied genetics with the goal of taking environmental threats, the responses and predicting these, such as anthropogenic change, droughts, flooding, air pollution. I'm taking this data and I'm writing publications on the work that I've done. These publications are then put into data sets. And it's not just my work, it's the work of myself and everyone else in the country who's working on it. These data sets are then delivered to the research science community before it is sort of converted into science. So if you've discovered something, you're talking about something, and you know something that no one else does, all of these facts are put into a packet. And that packet is sort of parsed out to the community. And by packet, I mean someone has read this information, and they're looking at it, and they say, hey, this is what happened. So-and-so figured this out. So it's converted to science that can be used to assist land managers in making their decisions. An aspect of this work is a project I'm working on now. It's called assisted migration. Has anyone heard that term before? That's pretty hot in my area. <laughs> so with assisted migration, you're looking at climate change. For instance, in a particular area of the country, as Concepcion mentioned, wildfires, flooding. Well, if you've got tree species that only live in that particular area, you want to look at other areas of the country where they could be moved to. So essentially, you're going to take some of those seedlings, move them to an area that is predicted using climate prediction software to be an acceptable place for them to live so that, God forbid, if something happens and that entire species is wiped out in their native area, you will have an alternative place for them to be. It's assisted migration. And if we look at our own population, it's we like to call folks snowbirds. These are folks who typically never had any issues with the brutal winter in the north. It was not a problem. Cold sensitivity wasn't an issue. Arthritis wasn't an issue. As, as the population matures, 
they're less inclined to want to deal with that weather and they move south. So they essentially assist in their own migration so that it's easier for them to handle the weather. So when I talk about species that are going to be examined to look at this sort of assisted migration, we're going to select species that have economic value. So something that, um, like Consuela was talking about, they have an economic benefit. They can be used in building. So you obviously don't want to lose all of your building materials. You want species that have a cultural benefit to certain populations. You clearly don't want to interfere with someone's culture. And you want something that has an ecological benefit. So you want mast species. Mast species are species that produce acorns or walnuts, something that the wildlife can eat during those harsh weather conditions because they obviously can't get on a plane and head to Florida with everyone else. So by looking at all of these different scientific uh, methods and looking at the data that comes from it, that's how I am supporting and generating knowledge for climate smart management decisions. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Dr. Lawson. Now we're going to shift into another uh, point of discussion, and this is giving your expertise and personal journeys has accomplished professionals and scientists with the Forest Service. Uh, what do you think are unique opportunities and challenges in the management of ecosystems currently threatened by climate change? And first, I'd like to invite Dr. Johnson for her remarks. Well, I think the Forest Service really has an opportunity to make an impact in urban communities, okay? So the agency works across the urban to rural um, continuum. And maybe most folks, when they think about the Forest Service, of course, they think about the, um, the national forests that are always in a, a rural context. But, you know, there's this realm of forestry that's called urban forestry, and that has to do with uh, trees, um, forest patches that are located in uh, urban and metropolitan areas. So um, I think the agency has an opportunity to really to engage with um, a little bit more with uh, communities of color and what we call environmental justice populations, environmental justice populations being minoritized folks and lower wealth folks. Um, but, um, you know, and, you know, and I think, you know, the opportunity here has to do with you know, coming in and bringing in, say, greening programs, you know, planting trees and, you know, maybe supporting other kinds of efforts along that front. But I think um, just as important as any type of greening effort that the Forest Service might uh, be associated with, I think it's also really important, it's really crucial, really, for public agencies like my agency to understand how, say, a greening effort might fit within the broader context of the issues that folks in communities are already dealing with. And again, this sort of relates to my um, focus on the, the, the broader context of place and the issues, vulnerabilities, and opportunities that, that are presented to folks. So if um, I would say state in private forestry, I'm not, but say if I would, would state in private forestry or even in my role as a researcher, if I think that I have some idea, have had some conversations with folks in a given community about the potential for my agency supporting some type of greening effort, right? That's fine, but 
really crucial to that effort is to really sit there long enough with these communities to understand the other things that they're contending with that may have to do with um, quality of housing, education, quality of education, uh, 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 crime rates, for instance. Um, and I think this approach really allows us to really be with communities rather than sort of coming and imposing what we feel is might be a fix to what's going on in those places. Thank you, Dr. Johnson, for pointing at the importance and the potential that green infrastructure has within the urban setting, connecting, Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> connecting you know, conservation efforts and, and the community's health. Um, I would like to invite uh, Dr. Brandes. Uh, what do you think are unique opportunities and challenges in the management of ecosystems currently threatened by climate change? Thank you. Um, so obviously, you heard me talk about wood products. I'll keep droning on it. <laughs> I see a lot of opportunities for the uh, wood products um, to, to help with the mitigation of climate change. Um, so there is opportunities to highlight those benefits and, and make sure that um, we contribute to that mitigation in a smart way. For instance, promoting wood to be used instead of uh, carbon-intensive products in the construction of houses. Houses last a very long time, so we will store that, that carbon in those houses for a long time. And at the same time, we can replace um, products such as concrete and steel for wood, which give us another, another advantage. Um, but with all that, uh, I also see challenges with that because it depends on how we make those changes and apply those, those benefits. Um, they can actually give us not the, the intended outcome. For instance, and I'm gonna give you an example. Um, right now, there is, there is, a, there is, a, there is a, an, an effort to um, pay landowners to delay harvesting. So they will pay a landowner to not harvest this year, harvest perhaps in a year, in another year or two, with the idea that that is storing carbon for a longer time, right? Because we're not taking those trees out. However, um, by not doing that harvest, we're not generating what that, we're still generating those wood products. I mean, in theory, right? We're still demanding the wood, the wood products, so the industry, instead of harvesting on that side for that, from that landowner, will go somewhere else to get that wood. So we're just transferring that. We're not really achieving anything with it. So we need to be cautious when, when we have um, those strategies and, and, and evaluate what the impacts are beyond the area where we're applying that change. So, um, so that I see that as a challenge because those effects can be you know, widespread. For instance, if we all of a sudden simply um, delay harvest across a lot of lands in the US, we're gonna probably go somewhere else to get that wood, right? To another country. And those countries might not have the same protections for the environment that we do. Um, also, we might, because we don't have the supply for the industry, then the products within the US will not be as competitive and then we either get products that are imported from other countries or substitute those products, wood products, for products that are more uh, emission intensive. So we have to be careful about it. There are opportunities, but we need to be careful how we approach it. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Brandes. Good point. We are all in this together. <laughs> uh, 
I would like to invite Ms. Flores. What do you think are some opportunities and challenges? My answer is kind of based on what uh, Cassandra was saying here. Uh, but one opportunity, I think, is to improve communications and working relationships with tribal nations and underserved communities and groups. So the Forest Service is actively beginning to work on this, and they have stated that they are engaging with tribal nations and addressing environmental justice is a foundational to successfully adapting our landscapes to a changing climate. So this is an opportunity to develop strong collaborations with tribes and other indigenous and underserved people, which can work to secure environmental justice. So indigenous people have cared for the land for thousands of years, and their understanding of nature would benefit the management of ecosystems that are currently threatened by climate change. One of the examples of that is when uh, there, the tribal adaptation menu was created in 2019 for the Great Lakes region. So currently other tribal groups in other regions are developing tribal adaptation menus using the Great Lakes adaptation menu as an example. Now one of the challenges to me is literally the other side of the coin, is to make sure that the voices of tribes and underserved communities are heard and included in tribal adaptation and not tribal, just climate adaptation plans. So as we are all aware, tribal and underserved communities have experienced decades of institutional inequities that have contributed to their vulnerability and to climate change. That's kind of what uh, Cassandra is addressing here too. All tribes and communities are unique and each should be approached respectfully with the understanding that collaboration takes time, especially when trust was broken in the past. So the Forest Service is meeting the challenge by meaningfully including these communities in co-creating climate adaptations. So this will ensure that they don't suffer disproportionate adverse impacts from the agency's decisions and that they benefit equitably from climate adaptation activities. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ms. Flores. I, I like a lot your remarks around co-production of knowledge <laughs> and taking those into consideration in, in climate change mitigation or adaptation plans. Um, now, for the first time in the nation's history, the federal government has made it a goal that 40% of the overall benefits of certain federal investments are to flow to disadvantaged communities that are underserved and overburdened by pollution. The question now is, what do you hope will be the role of women of color in STEM for the advancement of environmental justice and the production of science for the better management of climate smart forests, communities, and economies? And I would like to invite Dr. Lawson. My expertise, my ability to network and collaborate with other groups and a willingness to serve disadvantaged communities makes my role more of that of a research ambassador. With me stepping in to directly disseminate data, the results of my research regarding climate change and management can be delivered efficiently and effectively to the communities that need it the most. With connections to minority-serving institutions like Morgan State University, my undergrad, and UMES, which is the same university that Conception went to, I can also work with those universities and minority-serving organizations like SACNAS, the Society for the Advancement of Chicanos and Native Americans in Science, Manners, Minorities in Agricultural, Natural Resources and Related Sciences, and ACES, the American Indian Science and Engineering Society. I can work with all of these groups to provide credible science that can be used to deliver cutting edge research directly to the population. 
And as an example, the Flint water crisis is not a distant memory in anyone's mind at this point. When I was first made aware of it, obviously I couldn't do a lot, but I worked with a group on Purdue University's campus to acquire thousands and thousands of bottles of water and deliver them directly to the communities. They set up in the church parking lots, the supermarket parking lots, and just gave the water away because these communities needed it the most. So I keep saying I and my, it's not all about me, it is about us coming together as a group. The women in this room all have a unique viewpoint, the men too, I'm not excluding. We can all come up with something that we can work on together so that we can make these steps and we can go directly to our communities and give them the science that they need to do better. Like everyone's gonna have a different viewpoint or a different way of approaching a topic that may be better than mine, may be better than the scientists that I'm working with, and we all need to work together to do something like that. So. Thank you. Dr. Johnson, what are your hopes uh, for the role of women um, in STEM for the advancement of environmental justice? Absolutely. I think I'm going to kind of, I had a prepared answer, but as I um, kind of reflect up here a little bit, I think I'm going to give sort of a non-sciencey non answer. Um, and it sort of relates to a little bit of doc, uh, what uh, Dr. Lawson shared. I think it's really important to be engaged with communities, with communities of color, um, in a way that is like really deep and authentic. And for me, one of those ways is like sort of being a mentor, being a mentor um, at elementary uh, school age on up through high school, and you know, sort of being in place, maybe following, um, connecting with the child, and. Uh, um, hopefully being able to follow that child on through high school graduation, maybe on up through college, is another example, is a real example, I think for me, of trying to understand what's going on with that particular kid and maybe what's going on with that kid's community. And so that's before I even say anything about science or technology. Uh, if I have a real authentic relationship with like that and can build on it, then um, I can know that person and I know, can know better, a little bit better about the place where that person is. And then only after kind of building that, that solid foundation, maybe come in with you know, questions and direction about how that child might want to pursue a career. Thank you. Ms. Flores, what are your, your hopes uh, for the role of women um, in this theme of environmental justice? My question is, I mean, my answer is very much based on what Shanika and, and Cassandra said. So my hope is that just it, it continues, and and you know we're already contributing a lot by just attending this conference. But being in our professions and our fields, so as Dr. Johnson, Cassandra had pointed out, I think her work in the social vulnerability aspect of things is promoting em environmental justice, and I'm sure there are others that will continue to do that as well. And for the science part, I think that Dr. Lawson and Dr. Brandeis here are, again, working on that type of thing on the science side, providing data, relevant data to, to questions that we're asking, as uh, Dr. Lawson has said. Um, those things are, I think, are, are producing science for climate smart communities. And just 
one last thing is that I'm, I'm sure, you know, women of color in STEM are innovative and creative enough to come up with useful technology, things we haven't talked about or thought about before in providing management for those climate smart forests. And I am hopeful, you know, for the future. We do have some big challenges in front of us, but I think women of color in STEM are going to be the answer to some of these big questions that we have for our future. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. The, the U.S. Forest Service uh, stewards 193 million acres of land and has a mission to conserve the nation forests and grasslands. And uh, the Forest Service plays a leading role at providing knowledge and using the best available science to accomplish that mission. The question is, for all of the panelists, what personal and professional goals do you think have been critical steps for you to become a climate smart STEM professional in the agency? And I would like Dr. Brandis to share her perspective first. Sure. So, um, so I grew up in a, in a, in a small town in, in, in the coast in Chile. Chile is, for those of you that are not geography oriented, like myself, <laughs> Chile is in South America, at the very, very end of South America, um, bordering the, um, the um, Pacific Ocean. It's a very long and skinny country. But anyway, my town was very small, and it was very dependent on the forest industry. We had uh, a big pulp mill in town, and it's located, still, still active, um, it's located uh, in, um, in the entrance to the beach, to the road to the beach. So, so you saw it every time you went to the beach, you, you know, you had to walk or drive by the pulp mill. Uh, and I was always curious to see, you know, the, the trucks, the logging trucks going in and out. And it's like, where is all that wood coming from? <laughs> and you know, the big yard outside full of wood piled up and, and being always, um, they, um, they apply water to the wood so that it doesn't, it doesn't dry out and it doesn't um, decompose or, or, or have funguses. And, and I, always, I was always curious as to why do they do that, you know? And, and also to see how the industry evolved through time as I grew up. I saw more and more industry coming into the town and, and surrounding areas. Um, you know, we, had, we now have, I think it's like half a dozen sawmills and, and veneer mills, et cetera. So it, the sector grew quite a bit. And I was always interested about that. I mean, what was motivating that change and how that effect was affecting uh, the communities and the people I knew. So, so it's a very personal, personal reason why I was interested in forestry. And, um, and, and how timber resources are, are utilized, right? And, and how they are connected to the landowners and also to the small communities where, where those um, industries are located. So my goal is to apply what, what I've learned um, through my years of education and what I hope to keep learning in the future to, to, con to, to explore those issues further and um, how they affect the resource use and provide that information to others to help um, manage those resources in a way in which um, we're effectively bringing benefits to society. Thanks. Dr. Lawson? As you heard from my intro and my bio, my personal and professional goals have shifted that multifaceted approach. Um, a penultimate goal of mine has always to be an advocate for change. I want to make sure that everything that I do 
has a positive impact. I know you've heard, you know, what is it, no, no publicity is bad publicity. The, that most certainly is a fib when you're working for the U.S. government. You want to make sure that what you do is going to make a difference in the communities that need it the most. And I've, I've done the field work, I've done the laboratory, laboratory work, and I'm also engaged in citizen science efforts, which I think is something that's gonna happen outside of the job. You can do some of the work on the job, but you've got to put in a little bit of extra time. If you're gonna just do your 40-hour work week, be like, oop, mid-phone call, hang up. I don't know that you're gonna do as well as if you took the extra time maybe volunteering on the weekend, working with a community group. Like I mentioned before, I helped deliver thousands of bottles of water to Flint, Michigan. What I didn't mention was this was a tie-in that I made with World Water Day, which is a celebration in March of fresh water. So in addition to us just delivering that water to Flint, Michigan, World Water Day, that calls attention to the 2.2 billion people living without any access to fresh water at all. So when I tied that in, the Flint water crisis was actually what do you, simulcast worldwide because we're not the only people who celebrate World Water Day. It was all around the country, all around the world, that people were made aware of what was happening in, happening in Flint. And that was a citizen science effort. So we've got to sort of relate what we do and the attempts that we make to make a difference to how it can be beneficial and how you can get the most people to hear what you were trying to say. And everything that you do in science What's happening and what's an absolute fact today may not be an absolute fact tomorrow because the science is always changing. The weather changes, the science changes. I mean, we all heard that the world was flat and that was law for the longest time, but that's not the way it is anymore. And as things change, we have to change along with it. For example, food crisis. Everyone has seen the grocery store prices go up, up, and up. Sidebar, I was talking to a youth group and I was trying to explain to them using the dollar menu at McDonald's and I was very politely told that we don't order off of the dollar menu. So for those of us who understand how the dollar menu has gone from the dollar to the dollar and 69 cents, you know how if the climate has suddenly gotten hotter and all the crops have died, that means that the, the livestock has nothing to eat. That means that the farmer is going to lose, lose livestock. That means that the farmer needs to find something else to feed those livestock. That means all of the costs associated with that, we're going to pay. So if we can figure out alternative ways to use the science that we have to make climate smart management decisions, it's gonna be better for us and for everyone else. We have to work together to make a difference for everyone, not just ourselves. Thank you. Ms. Flores? For me, I, I think most of my goals have, have been critical in to becoming a climate STEM professional in the Forest Service. However, there's a couple that just come to mind, and one might not quite be a goal, but it's something that my father instilled in me. He would tell me, do the best job in whatever you are doing. So for me, each job that I ever had, that's what I tried to do, whether that was counting grass stems for my master's research on the Eastern Shore, that's what I did, uh, or managing a million dollar project, a million dollar budget for the Navy Region Southwest Agriculture Program. That's what I did a few months ago. And so my work at OSC has been a significant learning curve. I just started in August, only been here a couple months, but it's something that I will continue to work on and, and make efforts to uh, participate in the coordinating efforts and, th and things. 
And another goal for me is to have a profession that it supports conservation and benefits tribal communities and our underserved communities. So, so far I've worked for 25 years in natural resources field and supported conservation. But most of my jobs did not support tribal communities or underserved communities. With this position at the Office of Sustainability and Climate, we will be working on conservation and I will be allowed to actually assist with tribal and underserved communities at this most critical time. Thanks. Thank you. Dr. Johnson? Okay. So what are some things that may maybe have been critical for me to become a climate smart STEM professional? Well, I'm not sure that that's what I am, but <laughs> I will just say briefly that I really have had the opportunity to work um, on interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary teams with biophysical and physical scientists. Um, and so this has helped me to really understand sort of the, uh, maybe the physical aspects of say um, climate risk, um, factors uh, associated with events like wildfires and um, other kind of storms. And so this has really been beneficial to me and has really helped me to kind of flesh out my uh, experience as a researcher. Thank you. Thank you. I sincerely want to thank all the panel members for participating in today's session. It was truly fantastic. Um, I have uh, put the slides with their email address, so if you want to continue the conversation through electronic communications, please uh, do so. I also want to uh, point out again that we are having a career fair tomorrow, Saturday, 10 to 4. And we have uh, recruiters in the virtual environment, but we also have in-person um, HRM personnel here. We have Emily Ortiz. We have um, Barbara Jordan providing the information. You can also scan the QR codes that will take you into uh, our virtual session for tomorrow. We are open for several uh, positions in terms of student trainee, internships in engineering, architecture, physical sciences, financial management, and information technology. And there are also multiple positions, multiple grades for recent graduates merit in civil engineering, land surveying, geographic information system specialist ecologies, engineering technicians, and accounting. Thank you all for coming. I also wanna uh, present to you some of our executives that are in the room. So if during the day, today or tomorrow, you want to network, we have Anna Briatico, Deputy, Associate Deputy Chief for Research and Development. We have Dr. Ralph Crawford, Associate Deputy Chief for Diversity and Inclusion within the Research and Development Unit uh, with the Forest Service. And in the back, we have Ms. Tina Terrell, Senior Executive on Recruitment. Thank you all for coming. <laughs>